Hey, um, do you ever, uh, well, do you ever feel like an ass? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, amen. Let me, I, I wasn't finished with my sentence, though, Nick. <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you ever feel like an ass when you try to tell people about Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I was thinking, now why is that? And, and I think there are some reasons. For one, the word of God offends people. It, it cuts into their ego. Charles Wesley wrote this. Nothing is more repugnant to capable, reasonable people than grace. I didn't used to believe that, but I do now. Frankly, I'm surprised that anyone comes to church, especially after a sermon like last week's. You, you remember that I preached God is salvation, which means that you are not salvation at all. In other words, you're no better than anyone else, even Hitler. Jesus is better than Hitler. But you on your own, by yourself, you are better than no one no one else. See, the word of God, the word of God, the, the word of God's grace, it just obliterates the human ego. Any ego. Uh, one night years ago, a friend of mine had an encounter with Jesus as we prayed for her deliverance from some just horrid memories in her past. At one point, Jesus stood in front of her in the glory of his relentless love. And as she was having this vision, I remember saying to her, don't you see, you, your sins, they are absolutely forgiven you. And I remember she grabbed me by the collar and through her tears she screamed into my face, don't you get it? I don't want to be forgiven. If you're forgiven, you cannot justify yourself <laughs> because you've been justified. Pride and shame are two sides of the same idol, and that idol is called the self. The word of God is a knife that sacrifices the self, the psyche, the flesh. That's what we talked about last week. The word of God cuts away that which separates and is the will that binds everything together such that none is left alone. It is not good. That's evil. It is not good that the Adam is alone said God. So, number one, the word of God offends people, and number two, when I speak it, I often feel like a fool. I have to testify to something that I really just do not fully understand. People want something they can understand, something they can comprehend, something they can understand and use to make a life, to make their life work. I cannot make the word of God work for you. And that cuts into my ego. The word offends people, makes me feel like a fool. And number three, I sometimes despair that it makes any difference at all. I mean, it just seems so broken and weak. Actually, all words seem kind of weak. Well, sticks and stones will break our bones, won't they? All words seem weak, particularly in, particularly in, this, in this modern era ever since the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, refers to most of the last 300 years in a view of reality built on uh, Newtonian understandings of space and time. It's the idea that only matter and energy are real, while words and ideas are more like mythical byproducts of chemicals in the brain, the epiphenomenon of, of brain. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the Enlightenment led to Christian liberalism. That's the idea that we can't take the Bible too seriously and that in the words of Rudolf Bultmann, it needs to be demythologized. Uh, the claim that God created all things with a word and a statement like, before Abraham was, I am, must clearly be poetry, thought the liberals. Poetry, not reality. In the 20th and 21st centuries, fundamentalists and evangelicals reacted by arguing that we uh, actually need to take the Bible literally. We need to take it literally. And yet, by literally, they didn't mean according to the author's literary intent. Uh, they, they meant that, that we needed to take everything in the context of our modern notions of space and time and therefore make 
the Bible, the word reasonable to us. So they develop simple theories to explain uh, the work of the cross, the atonement. And they develop maps of the end times, which would fit in the boxes on any human calendar taped to any human refrigerator. Ironically, like the liberals, they thought that matter is what matters, and words are weak. Even the Pentecostals and Charismatics got in on the action. So some folks think that unless someone shakes or, or a leg grows, nothing really happens. As if the flesh availeth much, and the spirit availeth little. It is the spirit that gives life, said Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 6. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Well, my background is liberal, fundamentalist, charismatic. <laughs> I'm messed up. And I'm a little sympathetic to each one of those. I'm just pointing out that for all of us modern folks, non-Christian and Christian, words seem weak. They must have really seemed weak along about 70 AD in Asia Minor when the seven churches received a circular letter from John, the beloved disciple, exiled on the island, the prison colony of, of Patmos. By 70 AD, Nero had burned countless believers in the Colosseum in Rome or, or offered them as sport for the gladiators. Much like America today, in ancient Rome, it wasn't truth or love that reigned supreme. It was all about power. Life was the survival of the fittest. This man, this Spartacus, has proven himself in the arena. For this, Legatus, Claudius, Glaber, and I grant him life. Well, that's a modern very uh, explicit and graphic depiction of Spartacus, the Roman slave who became a champion gladiator and won his life by taking the lives of others. In 73 BC, Spartacus led a rebellion against Rome. He fought power with power and eventually Rome crushed Spartacus and his fellow slaves. 140 years later, in 70 AD, it was a common belief that none could stand against a supernatural beast called Rome, let alone seven little churches in Asia Minor. This is actually a little graffiti from, from Rome, a little graffiti this morning. It's called the, Ale, the no, the, the Alexamenos Graffito. It's graffiti and possibly uh, the very first, the very earliest uh, depiction of Jesus that we have in all of the world. Uh, this is a line drawing of the, of the graffito so you can see the image better. It's a picture of a man worshiping another man crucified on a tree, a man with the head of a horse. The graffiti states, Alexamenos worships his God. To speak the word in Rome was to look like an ass. And of course, you, you remember that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he rode on an ass, which was obviously a great disappointment for many of the Jews, but it was just as Zechariah had prophesied, chapter 9, behold your king is, which means like right now, behold your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of an ass. An ass meant humility. The Jews didn't want a savior on an ass <laughs> that would save them from themselves. They wanted a king on a war horse that would save them from Rome. But that's how he came, humble, riding on an ass. Revelation 19, he comes again. Or maybe I should say in Revelation 19, he, he comes. In Acts 1.11, an angel tells the disciples that Jesus will come in the same way that they saw him go. And yet, the Bible never uses this phrase. This is a bit shocking when you, when you think about it. The Bible never uses the phrase, the second coming. 
To the high priest on Good Friday, Jesus said this, I tell you, from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That means that ever since his crucifixion, Jesus has been coming in power. But, but maybe then we're not so good at recognizing real, real power. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, but standing before the high priest that day, he looked more like what? A, a slaughtered lamb. So will he come again? Well, it's clear that time as we experience it, the ages, the ions in Greek, will come to an end. But scripture is also clear, we're soon gonna read this, that Jesus is the end, and his sacrifice is the end of the ions, the end of the ages, uh, come to us even, and even revealed in us as, as faith. That's why I keep showing you this funky timeline. This matters. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes that the man of lawlessness, the imitation Christ, will be destroyed by the breath of Christ's mouth and the epiphanao of his parousia. That means the epiphany of his presence or the manifestation of his coming, as if he's always coming, but, but we don't see it. One day it will be manifest. You, you, you may remember that this actually happened, the epiphanao of his parousia. It happened to St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to Paul, and just his appearing destroyed the imitation, imitation Christ, which was the flesh of the old Pharisee named Saul. Just the revelation that God is salvation utterly destroyed the illusion that Paul and his good deeds our salvation. Later, Paul wrote, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Technically, if we want to be accurate, Scripture records the second coming of Christ along about 35 AD on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, and yet Christ is still coming and has been coming since Good Friday at least. So if we believe Scripture, Christ is coming now. He's always coming, and we will see him. We, you will, we will see him. But currently, we seem to have a hard time recognizing his presence as if something is just blocking our view. Well, anyway, <laughs> talking about all this kind of stuff kind of makes me feel like an ass. Revelation 19.10. The angel says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, or the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Testimony of Jesus can mean testifying to Jesus, being a witness, or Jesus testifying through you, maybe even with you. Whatever the case, when you testify to Jesus, you prophesy. And it means that all the prophets, even the ones in the Old Testament, were testifying to Jesus. The more I study, the older I get, the more I look at it, the more I realize, oh my gosh, that is absolutely true. Through Isaiah, God says this, listen closely. I am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. See, all the prophets testify that we are not salvation, but God is salvation, Yahshua. They all testify, and yet each one of them feels like an ass. God actually commanded Isaiah to prophesy naked for three years with, quote, unquote, buttocks uncovered. A few years ago, a friend of mine who's usually here on Sunday mornings in worship but is out of town today, she came to me and she said, Peter, God showed me that this scripture is for you. <laughs> and I said, thanks. I guess. I don't have a problem with being naked of clothes, but I do have a problem with being stripped of my ego. God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll and speak the word, and the people once won't, they won't, they won't listen. Speak it, and people won't listen, God says. And he told me once, I think, that he was calling me to do the same. Jeremiah finds God's word and he eats God's word. Uh, they become a delight to his heart and yet he finds himself alone and weeping. See, they each testified to salvation and then felt like an ass. Think of Hosea. Hosea is committed to marry a harlot because God is married 
to a harlot. We just witnessed the destruction of the harlot in the last chapter of the Revelation, and we're about to behold the bride, the new Jerusalem coming down. But in between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, we see this rider on a white horse. Jesus rode an ass into old Jerusalem. Or at least that's what we saw. Jesus is the lion, but he looks, he looks like a slaughtered lamb. That's, that's what we saw. Jesus rides a war horse in Revelation 19, but now we're seeing from the perspective of heaven. If we were on earth, maybe all we'd see is like a donkey. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron not he will tread but he does tread is the Greek he does tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords then I saw an angel standing in the Sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, the sacrificial supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men. Not some. All. Both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with Theon, divine being. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We preached about most all of that last week. And so this week, I'd just like to point out that the word wins. <laughs> the word conquers. Remember the revelation is sent to these seven little churches in Asia Minor, and it's all about conquering. That is winning. Our national dialogue now is all about winning, even though we struggle with, well, what exactly would that mean? Does that mean? Well, the word that is faithful and true wins. And that's weird. Because when we speak a word that is faithful and true, we often feel like an ass and end up looking like a slaughtered lamb. So what is the word? What is the word, word of God? Well, the, the word word translates the Greek word logos from which we get our word logic. The word is the, the logic, the re reason or, or idea of God. You know, physicists now argue that the idea in an observer's thoughts may actually be more real than matter and that all matter came from something that we previously thought didn't matter. <laughs> that which is not matter, that which is, quote unquote, outside of space and time, and quote unquote, before the Big Bang. In other words, the age of reason was entirely unreasonable, not only philosophically, but scientifically, for all matter and energy appear to be based on an idea, a logos, a word. The word is reason. Indeed, it's the very, and I could get into physics a little bit here, I'm stopping myself, but the word is the very fabric of reality. In the beginning was the logos, the idea, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, writes John in the first sentence of his gospel. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory. His name is Jesus. 
which actually means God is salvation. Uh, you'd say it like, like this, you know this in Aramaic, Yahshua, which is short for Yahweh Yasha, that is God saves or God is salvation. Jesus is the word of God, Yahweh, in flesh, and, and he constantly quoted scripture. The word of God, don't know if you realize this, if you spend much time in the Old Testament, you'll realize it, but the word of God appears as a character over and over again throughout scripture. And, and John records Jesus as saying, scripture cannot be broken. Scripture is not an analytical explanation of the word, as if the word could be comprehended by us. Scripture is his story, the story of the word in space and time. So if you said to me, Peter, who is Susan, your wife? I wouldn't give you an analytical description of her biology or physiology or some doctor's analysis. I'd tell you stories of things that she's done. God is what he does, and he does what he is. God is salvation, and in flesh, Jesus. And he's called us to testify to him, that is to preach the word, the gospel, good news. Preach it. It's not a threat or a bargain or a deal, it's an announcement. It is not an announcement of what might be, but an announcement of what is. It's the revelation of reality. Uh, the judgment of the creator is a lion and a lamb who takes away the sin of the world to his disciples just before he ascends uh, in at, the, at the end of Luke and the start of Acts, he says this, it's written that the Christ rose from the dead and that, or that is, rose from the dead, that is repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It's to be proclaimed. You see, forgiveness is not earned but announced because it's reality. Repentance is a change of mind to come in line with reality. God is salvation, which means you are not salvation. That's the judgment, the word. Second Timothy, Paul writes this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by or judge the dead with his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach means to announce or to tell. And it's not just a description for me, it's for us. I think he, he may be calling you to tell, to tell, to, to announce. And so how do we speak the words? Here's a few thoughts from Revelation 19. Okay, first, you must hear the word to speak the word, and it will cut you. It's what I spoke about last time. The word cuts the flesh from all men. And the judgment begins with the household of God. When you testify that God is creator, you testify that you did not create you. When you testify that God is salvation, you testify that, yeah, you need a savior. When you sing amazing grace, um, how sweet the sound, you also sing that saved a wretch like me. When you announce the word, you'll feel like an ass and you probably look like one too. I mean by that that you'll be stripped of your ego. You will be undragoned. You remember uh, how Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia became so fascinated with the dragon that he actually became uh, a dragon and Aslan the lion had to strip him of his dragon flesh? Aslan had that power for he had surrendered his flesh and our flesh as a sacrifice upon the stone table. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, says Eustace. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. It's such fun to see it coming away. See, the Word of God will strip you of your fig leaves, your psyche, your ego, until you realize that someone else is speaking. Not the person that you thought you had made, but the person that God has made. You will experience that person as faith and hope and love rising within you.
Number two, you must believe, you must believe the word for others as you do for yourself. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Listen closely. The love of Christ controls us, the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded or literally judged this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. And now I love how the King James translates this. Look, all things have become new. If you allow yourself to be judged by God's word, God's word will change the way you judge all others. And that will change the meaning of all your words. Remember this picture from last week? Paul writes, we view no one according to the flesh. The flesh is the person that we think we have made. So we view no one according to their ego because we know that no one is their ego. No one is their resume. No one is their shame and no one is their pride. No one is the sum total of their own judgments that they have made about themselves. Someone may bite and devour and consume all the good that, that you give them like a beast, but, but you know, we know that is not who they truly are. Someone may manipulate and use our love like, like a harlot, but we know that is not who they truly are. Uh, they may act like an abomination, exalting themselves before men, but we know that abomination is only a shadow of who they truly are. They may act like the Antichrist, the imitation Christ, but we know that the Antichrist is a lie and Jesus Christ is the truth about that person or in that person. The world judges according to the flesh, but we know that the flesh has already been judged and condemned and destroyed. It's not who anyone truly is. Paul talks as if in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the tree in the Garden of Calvary, Jesus absorbed all of our sin into his own body of flesh and bore it to destruction. He calls it the circumcision of Christ. And it means that all our bad judgment is exposed for what it is and destroyed like a shadow is destroyed by the light. The flesh is destroyed. And so then, what's left? Well, just the breath of I am the judgment of God. I think that's the spirit of God. And that, my friends, is more valuable than anything that you can possibly comprehend, that spirit will be given new flesh which will be revealed as the body of Christ. And so the human psyche is more depraved than you could possibly understand, but the spirit in each of us is more glorious than you can possibly even begin to conceive. What I'm saying is that when you speak to the least of these, even the least of these, you speak to Jesus. Like Mother Teresa used to say, he's here in distressing disguise. I think this means that when you speak, you speak, you're to speak past a person's sin. You name it, you name it for what it is. You don't take it, but you don't take it as the truth about that person because it's truly not that person. It's the lie of the dragon about that person that they have believed. You look past their shame and fear and anxiety and despair and you speak to their spirit saying, rise from the dead. I know who you are. Your faith, your hope, your love. That's not something you can say with human words. It's God's word. So number one, we must hear the word for ourselves. Number two, we must believe it for others. And number three, we speak the word in truth when we see that the word is speaking us. And no, I know that just sounded like a bunch of weird freaking Buddhist New Age mumbo jumbo, but it's really an important point. Why? Because we've demythologized 
the word and turn it into something reasonable to us. Like, you know, a psychology or a sociology or an anthropology or a self-help book. And we've reduced the word to a plan of salvation or a map of the end times. We've turned the word of God into an incantation for making legs grow and for making people, people rich, liberal, evangelical, charismatic. We've turned the word of God into something to be used rather than a Lord to be followed. We treated the word of God as if it were a thing, right? We treated the word of God as if it was dead and we were alive. We've judged the word of God. Why did we do that? Well, maybe so that we wouldn't be judged by the word of God. We've, we've crucified the word of God, but we were dead. And the word of God is alive. He is the life. You see, it's the word that is living and active. In Revelation 19, John sees the army of, of heaven, which is 144,000, the, the bride who's made herself ready, which is the church. The church is not applying the word. The church is following the word. Have you ever had this experience? You're telling someone about Jesus and then you stop and realize, hey, I think that was Jesus talking, and I was just along for the ride. Sometimes it happens to people who have the gift of speaking in tongues. Sometimes it happens if you've ever had the experience of silencing a demon or casting it out of a person. Sometimes it happens uh, when people are, are healed and you um, happen to speak the, the, the word that, uh, through which they were healed or a word of knowledge that's just perfect for the moment. Actually, it happens anytime you love. He who loves is born of God and knows God. God is love. Right, John, writes John. When you love, God is speaking you and speaking through you, whether you know it or not. And whether or not you happen to use words, human words. Jesus is the word of our testimony, and we are his testimony, his body, through whom God loves. Love, and you will be speaking his word. Number four, we speak the word in faith when we trust that the word is the judgment of God and so we entrust all judgment to the word. Let me say this again because you didn't get it. We speak the word in faith when we trust that the word is the judgment of God and so we entrust all judgment to the word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Psyche and Numa, the old Adam and the breath of God, the old self and Christ's self, the self we have made and the self that God has made. The word of God is living and active, sharpening the two-edged swords, piercing to the division, the word of God, not us. In John 12, Jesus says something utterly fascinating. Listen to this. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, my rhema, has a judge. The logos, the word that I have spoken, will judge him on the last day. The last day is the day you wake from the illusion of your own control. The last day is the day you wake from the dream that you have created you and you finally see that you are God's creation. It's the day you wake from faith in me is salvation and uh, stand in front of God is salvation. It's the day you surrender your judgment to the judgment of God. You see, the judgment of God is reality. It's just the way things are, and everything else is lies, shadows, and illusion. The judgment of God is not dependent on you, but you are dependent upon the judgment of God. In John 12, in his human flesh, I think Jesus is saying something like this. Look, guys, I'm not interested in judging you. I'm just telling you, one day you will have to wake up to the judgment of God. I am the judgment of God. I am reality. 
Jesus continues, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What's the punishment for breaking that commandment? Would it be that you get to stay dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh? <laughs> I don't think so. Death must die, and you must live. God's commandment is life, for his judgment is life. God's judgment is Jesus, who is the life. Well, my point is that we don't, we don't judge, but we're called to speak the word that is the judgment. God is salvation, Yahweh, Yasha, Yahashua, Jesus. And that's not just a human word, it's the idea that upholds all of creation, all true creation. It's the word that became flesh in Jesus the Christ. He is the person people come to know through his story in the scripture, and he is the person that people come to know through his story, which is you. We've been called to testify, to be a witness to Jesus, a witness. No one likes a creative witness. That is a witness that creates the truth. What's a good witness? It's, it's, it's a person that has been created by the truth. The truth creates the witness. Another way to, to say that maybe is that it's not your job to judge but to just tell the story, tell your story, God is salvation, and tell your story and, and hope that the truth judges. You are to testify, and when you do, you'll probably feel like an ass because you're not testifying to how great you are, but how great um, God is for saving someone like you. We've been called to testify to God is salvation, and God is salvation will judge. What does he judge? the lie that we are salvation. God's judgment will expose our bad judgment and cause us to love God's good judgment and that truth will begin to separate the wheat from the tares. We can't do that, but the judgment can. That fire will begin to expose the dross and refine the gold. That knife will cut to the division of psyche and pneuma, soul and spirit. We've been called to testify to the word of God, which is living and active. You cannot comprehend the word of God, but the word of God comprehends you. You can't make the word of God work, but the word of God makes you work. If you think you have to judge and manipulate and use the word to save your neighbor, You're not testifying to the word. If you testify with fear and anxiety as if it depended on you or them, you're not testifying to God is salvation, Jesus. You're testifying to we are salvation. You're testifying to the flesh and the lie that comes from the pit of hell. You see, the question is not whether or not God will be salvation. I think that's how we've preached it. The question is not whether or not God will be salvation. The question is whether or not you want to help God save. The question is whether or not you want to announce his judgment. God is salvation and your sins are forgiven you. If you don't like that judgment, if you don't want to help him save, you really need to ask this question. Am I saved? Do I even have a clue as to what salvation is? Jesus saves us from our own judgment, which is sin. For we fall in love with God's judgment, who is grace. To be saved is to love God's judgment, who is Jesus. God's judgment is reality, and so to hate God's judgment is to be utterly alone in the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. No one will remain there forever without end, because Jesus is the end. But when you testify to Jesus, you and Jesus storm the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you, or he that is riding on your tongue. 
you do not judge, but you speak the word that is the judgment of this world, even if, especially if you feel like an ass. Once upon a time, there was a little donkey. One day, he came home just thrilled to death. He said to his mom, I had the most amazing day this morning. I went into the city. I went into Jerusalem, and people, they lined the sides of the street waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna at me. Mom, it was a great day for me. The old wise she-donkey looked at her little ass and said, sweetie, I'm sorry. That wasn't about you. That was about the one you were carrying. In this world, you may feel like an ass because there's a good chance that you look like an ass. But from the perspective of heaven, you're not an ass. You're a war horse. You're an army dressed in fine linen, storming the gates of hell. You're the body of the lion who conquers all space and time. You're the church. And there is no empire that can stand against you because of the one you carry, not on your back, but in the temple of your soul. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Jesus is the word of our testimony. In 70 AD, it looked as if nothing could conquer the Roman Empire. Nothing could conquer Rome. The believers in the seven little churches in Asia Minor were being threatened with losing their, their livelihoods and even their lives. If they refused to worship Caesar the beast, brothers in the synagogues were even betraying their, their brothers over to the concilia, the Roman authorities, over to the beast. In Smyrna, several of them would soon die. In Rome, a multitude had already been slaughtered in the arena. Peter and Paul had also been martyred in Rome. John was exiled by Rome onto the island of Patmos. The word must have seemed incredibly weak and inconsequential. They must have felt like fools. And yet, they spoke the word. And devoid of earthly power, the church grew as it never has since that time. By the fourth century, the empire itself was at least nominally Christian, and yet the crowd still came to the Colosseum to watch the gladiators. At the end of the fourth century, according to Theodoret, a bishop of Syria, and also Fox's Book of the Martyrs, written in the Middle Ages, there, there was a Syrian monk who at that time traveled to Rome on pilgrimage. He arrived just at the time of the Roman circus when the city was celebrating the recent victory over the Goths. He followed the crowd to the Colosseum where people had worshipped the beast and, and the harlot had drunk the blood of the saints for 200 years. He watched as the gladiators saluted the emperor and cried out, Hail Caesar, we who are about to die salute you. He watched as men became beasts and took each other's lives. But Telemachus didn't see beasts. He saw children, the children of God. Compelled by love, he jumped the perimeter wall. He ran down between two of the gladiators and attempted to stop their blows. He cried out, don't repay God's mercy by taking each other's lives. He looked like an ass. And when the crowd saw him interfere, they began to jeer and to chant, run him through, run him through, run him through. And then one of the gladiators ran him through. The crowd even joined in with stones hurled at Telemachus lying on the Colosseum floor. But with his dying breath, he preached the word. In the name of Christ, stop. As his blood spilled out, Onto the arena floor, the crowd grew silent. And then one after another, everyone left. They had been conquered by the word. Supposedly, that was the last gladiator contest in the Roman Empire, and Telemachus was the last gladiator. Jesus is the last Adam, the ultimate Adam, man in the image of God. He looks weak, and yet he is the word that upholds all things. He speaks a few words, and everything is made new. He speaks, Father, forgive them, 
It is finished. And into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the judgment of God. And when you announce the forgiveness of sins, he is the word that rides out on your tongue. The word of God conquers all things. But it first appears to us in this world as a cold and broken hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise God, praise Yahweh. God is love. This is so simple. God is love, and his judgment is his word. His word does not return void, but accomplishes that for which it was sent. And so soon, my friends, soon you will hear, within your lifetime, within one generation, you will hear every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them singing hallelujah to the one on the throne. And you will be so very, very, very not alone. Because the word took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body <laughs> given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I know this room, I've walked this floor I used to live alone before I knew you I've seen your flag on the marble arch Love is not a victory march It's a cone and it's a broken Hallelujah 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 What's real and going on below But now you never show it to me, do you? And remember when I moved in you The holy dark was moving too And every breath we drew was hallelujah Hallelujah, hallelujah If you'd like prayer, members of the uh, prayer team are down front. If you'd like to leave an offering to uh, help with the organ, you can do that uh, at the Welcome Center in the entryway. And uh, let me just say, don't feel sorry for Telemachus. I hate it when I preach a sermon like this and people put sad faces on the Facebook page, you know. <laughs> don't be sad for Telemachus. Because in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, his flesh was cut away and suddenly heard all the works of Lord God worshiping him on the throne and all the works that were not of God were revealed as just an illusion. And Telemachus's eyes were opened for his darkness had been cut away and suddenly he found himself at the edge 
of the new Jerusalem and it wasn't like he had been not been there before but now he could see it and he could look down into the valley of Gehenna and according to Isaiah 66 he could see his old body of flesh being consumed by eternal fire and the worm that does not die and then he would look down and he would see himself in new flesh but new flesh that felt other people's pain and other people's sorrow but there's no sorrow there it's all pleasure and then he would turn around and he would enter into the city into a great banquet that is a constant communion of life and love that is the very life and love that is the very heart of the Trinity behold God was bringing him into his very self and that's what he's doing with you because the Word of God does not return void it descends into the void and accomplishes that for which it was sent you've been called to preach the word <laughs> and it really matters why well, because it's good, because God told you to, but also because people are trapped in darkness. People are trapped in their own psyche. They're trapped in their own fear, and it's a real prison. And you know the word, the word that can release them. And your job is not this really burdensome thing as if you have to make it work. Your job is just to say, God is good. He's Jesus, and you can trust him. And so I hope you preach the word. I hope you just tell the people around you, God is good and you can trust him. And hey, check out this Jesus thing. He's forgiven you for all your sins. So the thing that's keeping you in bondage must not be him. It's something in you. Preach the word. And if people tell you to shut up, do. Just stop talking. Why? Because you are his testimony. God is love and his word is love and it's incarnate in you. The way you live in this world matters <laughs> because you manifest the logic or the logos of heaven. You are the new Jerusalem come down and I think the judgment is this. It's standing before Jesus. In, in Acts, Paul, Paul says this is the judgment um, the, that God will judge the world. He says this to the Athenians, by a man. Suddenly you'll find yourself in front of a man and now if people have rejected you and they don't want to listen to you, I think this might happen. They, they might look at Jesus and go, hey, you remind me of Scott. You remind me of Andrew or Josiah or Leslie. You're, you're kind of like Lynn. I think I'll trust you and that's salvation. In the name of Jesus, preach it. Amen.